Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Once again, I'm here to have a conversation with myself. That's me. And we're going to be talking about the persistence of discarnate entities in the afterlife. And, and what I mean by persistence in this instance is how long does a discarnate human entity remain in communication. Now, lots of people report ongoing communications with their deceased loved ones and friends, uh, sometimes for years, but typically uh, they are short-lived and, and brief, as a matter of fact. Uh, we don't know how easy or hard it is if you're there on the other side to communicate, but some discarnate entities seem to persist for over a hundred years. Let's begin there. Probably the most <laughs> persistent one is an entity known as John King, who first appeared in 1850, uh, as I recall, in seances with the Davenport brothers in the United States. Later on, John King appeared uh, in seances all around the world. It seemed as if mediums everywhere wanted to invoke John King, who also indicated that he was actually, John King being the, I don't know, spirit name that he used, but he, he in life had been uh, Henry Morgan, the buccaneer pirate, who was later appointed, as I recall, governor of Jamaica. So, he seems to be a very persistent and active communicator, and not just a communicator, he was involved in the production of materializations, a very dramatic physical phenomenon. So dramatic that uh, even today, uh, every instance remains highly controversial. And the reason is simply because there are people who won't believe it no matter what. <laughs> As one scientist said, I don't want to believe it even if it's true. So, uh, these phenomena will always be controversial, but the controversy extends beyond uh, what the uh, hardcore skeptics have to say about it. And I believe, of course, they're wrong because they're wedded to a materialistic metaphysics, which is in deep, deep trouble these days. And in fact, pretty much invalid in my view. But uh, I don't want to go there now. <laughs> We've done many New Thinking Aloud interviews about that topic. The point I want to make is this. Is John King a real discarnate human, or is it the invention of the mediums themselves? If you're a trance medium, or if you're in a circle, a spiritualist circle, and you're interested in cultivating physical mediumship and phenomena, wouldn't you wish to invoke the name of a spirit who already has a reputation for producing phenomena of this sort? Well, 
It does seem logical to me that you would want to do that, but does that in, its, in and of itself mean that the many manifestations, I think John King may be the most popular spirit guide uh, in the history of spiritualism, but uh, all of these manifestations uh, and the desire for of humans to invoke or conjure or create a John King, uh, does that invalidate the essence of the actual discarnate entity? It doesn't. I think that these things can operate in tandem, in fact, necessarily operate in tandem. William James, a great founder of American parapsychology, well, let me start over with that. William James, the founder of American psychology and also one of the pioneer psychical researchers. Uh, the term parapsychology wasn't really in use very much in James' lifetime, but he maintained in his study of transmediums, which was quite extensive, that there are two wills operating when a spirit manifests. There's the will of the external entity and there's the will of the medium to personate that entity. So, they go together hand in hand. And uh, I might add that James added another wrinkle to all of this. He said, we don't know, for example, that the spirit calling itself John King, the uh, pirate uh, governor of Jamaica, Henry Morgan, was that really him? Or could it have been, as was suggested by Madame Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, that the spiritualists got it wrong and that these so-called spirits they were invoking were actually demonic entities. They were discarnate, all right, but they weren't discarnate humans. They were inhabitants of the discarnate world who had access, you could say, to the Akashic records, what William James called the cosmic reservoir that uh, contained all knowledge, and that they were using their knowledge to deceive people. Even today, I hear from many people, particularly uh, devout Christians, who maintain that this is the case, that the spiritualists are being deceived not by demonic, but by demonic entities. So, it's a very, very complex area. You mentioned that John King first manifested in the 1850s, 30 years before the founding of the Society for Psychical Research in England. After all, spiritualism as, as a phenomenon, as a recent phenomenon, uh, uh, began in the United States with the Fox sisters in around 1848, and it swept across the world. It was like the consciousness movement today, the psychedelic movement, the human potential movement movement in an era in which people didn't have televisions to watch all the time. Throughout the world, they gathered in small circles to hold seances, and the reports of these phenomenon are really quite extensive, thousands of instances of uh, paranormal occurrences are in the literature. But John King, to my understanding, actually has manifested as recently as 1980. 
Well, sometime between 1961 and 1981, John G. Nyhart, who was the poet laureate of Missouri and the author of a best-selling book called Black Elk Speaks. He himself was an initiate in the Ogallala Sioux shamanic tradition, initiated by Black Elk himself. And uh, in 1961, when he was a professor at the University of Missouri, he formed a group called the Society for Research on Rapport and Telekinesis. And otherwise known as SORAT, and they produced a wide range of physical phenomena, and they had a wide range of entities that uh, came through as communicators. One of them was John King. Uh, another communicator was called 3 by 3 and claimed to be a, a manifestation from the subconscious mind of uh, one of the researchers, W. Edward Cox. So, you can get quite a mixture going on, but if we go from 1850 to about, let's say, 1980, you're talking about the persistence of a spiritual entity for 130 years on the other side. Now, why would that happen? Uh, so much of the spiritualist literature suggests that once you're on the other side, you want to evolve. You're going to either maybe be reincarnated, uh, you're going to pursue uh, higher levels of the spiritual planes, ultimately the, the moving closer and closer to the absolute. But uh, why would you maintain a consistent apparently non-evolving personality for 130 years when you're on the other side. It does suggest uh, or at least a little bit more credence to the idea that these mythical guides like John King are actually products of the human imagination, the living human imagination. Uh, certainly, we can't rule that out, but I'll give you another example. Similar to John King is Walter Stinson. Walter Stinson was a uh, brother of a great medium in the early part of the 20th century, Minna Crandon, also known as the medium Marjorie. It was a pseudonym, I guess, she used to protect her identity. Uh, Marjorie attracted worldwide attention and uh, uh, she was in the newspapers all the time because Scientific American magazine back in the 1920s was offering a cash reward for anyone who could demonstrate paranormal phenomena and she was tested. She was the wife of a Harvard physician. and. A very well-to-do, charming woman who could go into trance and produce a wide range of physical phenomena. And her main spirit guide was her younger brother, Walter Stinson, who had apparently died in a plane crash, I'm sorry, train crash, I think around 1911, as I recall. And now, Walter Stinson has appeared in seances long after Marjorie's death. Uh, well, in about 1925, Marjorie and her husband went on tour and they visited spiritualist centers around North America. One of those centers was in uh, Winnipeg, 
Canada. It was a very well-known uh, organization developed by Thomas Glendening Hamilton, a medical doctor in, in Canada who did extensive, well-documented research on physical phenomena. And I think it was about 1926 when uh, Marjorie and her husband visited. And thereafter, in the seances in Winnipeg, Walter Stinson appeared and the phenomena, largely ectoplasmic man manifestations and apports and, and, and the like, well documented. They had a seance room with dozens of cameras set up to capture anything that might occur. And there are many, many records now in the archives, as I recall, of the University of Manitoba of uh, these phenomena. And so, why is it the visit of Marjorie triggered the association with the spirit guide Walter? Now, what we don't have are, uh, to my knowledge, are records that indicate that Walter Stinson provided proof of his identity at any time. I think Marjorie and her husband certainly believed it and they would have had reason to do so having grown up with Walter. But uh, the Hamiltons in Canada never knew Walter and it's not at all clear to me that they were even interested in establishing his identity. What they were interested in is the phenomena that he produced. And in a way you could say those phenomena are a signature. And interestingly enough, Walter Stinson is today one of the main spirit guides working through Stuart Alexander in England. Now, you will find, and I'm going to link right now, actually link right now over here on the right side of your screen to some of the interviews with two of the interviews with Stuart Alexander, a great physical medium who has been uh, studied uh, by members of the Society for Psychical Research in England, who uh, there have been some publications attesting to his authentic physical mediumship, producing flying trumpets, direct voice materializations, also, uh, that work is discussed, and I'm going to link to another interview with Leslie Kane, who works with Stuart Alexander to this day. So, here you have, if we are to take Walter Stinson's manifestations at face value, producing physical phenomena. The kind that are so astounding that many skeptics just say, out of hand, it can't be true. This is childish nonsense and I won't have a word of it. That really pretty much is their attitude. Uh, fair enough. But it's a signature, though, of Walter Stinson in my estimation. And it suggests to me that a spirit like John King or Walter Stinson might persist in the afterlife and communicate over and over again in different mediumistic circles because, number one, they have the energy. They have uh, whatever psychokinetic or spiritual power is required to do this. And they have a certain attachment to the earthly plane to see it happen, to provide proof of, of their existence. 
That's their motivation. That's their intention. And I don't think we can dismiss that lightly either. I tend to think these things operate all together in combination. Well, it is interesting that if, if we look at the classical cases of the reincarnation type of the sort that have been investigated at the University of Virginia by Ian Stevenson and other colleagues there, Jim Tucker and, and others, uh, James Matlock has done a long series of interviews with me about these cases. I'll, I'll link here on the right side of your screen to uh, the first one of those. And the point that I want to make here is that when young children get in touch with a past life memory, the memory tends to fade. They talk about it a lot, starting as soon as they can talk, maybe at the age of two or three. And by the time they reach puberty, they have other interests. And of course, that, that's part of human development. They, they want to be accepted by their peers. They want to socialize. They, you know, they want to become a human in this lifetime. So the past life memories fade. You don't get the same kind of persistence uh, in reincarnation cases. But as I reported in an earlier monologue on spirit possession, I'm linking to it now, <laughs> there are cases of spirit possession. And, and typically how this works, it's sometimes called replacement reincarnation. A person is on the verge of death and they apparently die. But with, before the body can be buried, they wake up and they're alive and active and moving around. However, it seems to be a different individual, an individual with a different name and in a different history, memories, even different language patterns. And these individuals, you could say they are a possession or a replacement reincarnation, uh, they persist. There's good reason to think that those personalities might last uh, throughout the rest of the lifetime of that individual, uh, maybe as long as 60 years. So, uh, there's so much we don't know. There's so much we have to learn about this field. It is so complex. Why is it complex? Because we're dealing with human consciousness itself. And, you know, we think we know a little bit about consciousness, everyday waking consciousness, where we're mostly interacting in the physical world. We know a lot less about dreams. We know a lot less about lucid dreaming. It is important to acknowledge that the great psychologist of the unconscious mind, Carl Jung, felt that the collective unconscious, the consciousness that is shared by all of us, one might even say it's equivalent to the mystical one mind, contains the bardo planes, the afterlife. and. As, as well as all of our fantasies and dreams and tulpas and wishes. And, <laughs> you know, since I've mentioned the term tulpa, there I'm going to link to my previous monologue about tulpas as, as well, because that's another wrinkle to add to the puzzle. Well, I think we've uh, covered this topic as, as well as we can in a succinct conversation like this. So, I want to thank you for being with me. 
You know, it is always a pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.